and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Chris Jones. The Russian presidential election will take place this March. There are three official candidates running against current President Vladimir Putin. In any normal democracy, that would mean they might have a chance of winning. But this is no normal democracy. It isn't really a democracy at all. There is no chance Putin will lose this election, not whilst he's alive anyway. That doesn't mean, though, that Putin's hold over the Russian public will last forever. The longer this war continues in Ukraine, the more money he'll be forced to spend on it, weakening his position and potentially his popularity. And just because we know who's going to win this election doesn't mean we can't learn anything from it. So to help me get into the details of all of this, I'm joined from New York by Andrash Tot Zifra, a fellow in the Eurasia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And he recently authored Controlling the Narrative, a roadmap to Russia's 2024 presidential election, where he touches on the difficulties that Putin will face during and after this election. Hi, Andrash. Hello, good morning. Let's get the easy questions out of the way and potentially the, the, the most obvious, because no matter how many times I look at this election and how, how many times I, I talk about it, I can never quite grasp that it is completely rigged. Is, is it completely rigged? Is there absolutely no chance that Putin doesn't win this election? I don't think there is any chance that Putin does not win this election. Let's get right. that out of the way. But you mentioned something very important in your introduction, and uh, that is that these elections are not taking place in a democracy, and therefore it would be a little bit foolish to analyze them as if they took place in a democracy. I think if you regard the Russian elections, any Russian elections, for that matter, legislative elections, uh, regional elections, and presidential elections, which is, of course, the most important of all, through the lens that you would use to regard elections in democracies, then you will find that these elections don't really matter. Because as you mentioned, there are several candidates running, but we all know who's going to win. And there is no question that is indeed one of the functions of elections in autocracies that you know already who's going to win and the rest of the candidates are there to play democracy but the message that you need to transmit to the electorate is that there's no alternative there's absolutely no way that anyone else is going to win on the other hand if you look at these elections through the lens of either someone who lives in an autocracy or someone who sort of manages an autocracy then the elections indeed all elections including this presidential election have very important functions and therefore it would be strange if they, as some have suggested last year, they weren't held because they have a legitimizing function, which I have just brushed upon. They need to, especially the presidential election, they need to showcase support for the incumbent, which is why in presidential elections, it's usually an expectation of the Kremlin that both the turnout and the pro-president vote, the pro-Putin vote should be as high as possible. It needs to showcase what I have mentioned, the lack of alternatives. From the point of view of the electorate, on the other hand, both the presidential election and other elections are opportunities to engage in a sort of low-risk form of anti-government activism by voting, either by either by voting against a so-called systemic opposition candidate, which means uh, opposition candidates who are tolerated by the Kremlin, and they're, thereby showcasing their frustration. So elections are still ways to express your frustration, even if it is obviously not, doesn't work quite the way as it would in a democracy. And for the Kremlin, it is also a vital test of the officialdom of the, the sort of the political machinery that the federal government relies on to 
control the country because even if the elections are completely rigged which again it, it it depends from region to region and this rigging which does take place has to be performed by people has to be performed by people who run electoral precincts who people who ensure that the right people turn out to vote the kremlin relies on 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 these sort of uh, executors of its will and all elections are tests whether this political machinery is still working yeah. I wanted to touch on the opposition, as it were. There are three official candidates, I think, as we're recording this on the 25th of January. Are they actually real candidates? Can we really call them candidates? Or are they all just part of this theatre of the veil of democracy that the Kremlin tries to, to push forward to the Russian public? Are they real candidates at all? In a democracy, they would be dismissed as not real candidates because they know that they are not in it to win it. And some are quite open about this. I believe it was the candidate of the New People's Party who was quite wishy-washy about uh, what, what victory means in this election. Or you have uh, Lenny Slutsky, who is the candidate of the you know rather misleadingly named Liberal Democratic Party, which is neither liberal nor democratic, which is essentially a pro-Putin party and has, has supported pro-Putin policies over the past couple of years. So in this sense, they are not real candidates because they are aware of their chances and they are aware that they are not going to win. On the other hand, they are still sitting atop or in some cases like near the top of uh, political machineries that are run by people that have their own interests and they want to use the elections to to sort of strengthen their positions within the current system. Within the system, there are these questions and these candidates are there not just for the theater, but also because they themselves and their and the parties and the interests that they represent have interests uh, in the game, in the current game. But they are not in there to win it. There's a pretty large caveat, I know, but uh, it still, to me, says that uh, the elections are important to watch and it's important to understand why these people are there. And uh, while none of them are going to win or even make it into the second round, they are still players on their own right. With all that in mind, I want to bring this back, kind of back down to earth a little bit uh, to talk about the Russian public, the real people that are really the, the ones that are going to be impacted by all of this. If these candidates aren't real candidates, to what extent do people in Russia feel that they can actually vote for who they want to support if they know that these candidates aren't real? Surely there's just a, a feeling of just endless pointlessness of going out to vote then. One of the challenges for uh, the political technologists of the Kremlin is to drive up turnout to an extent that, that that suggests a huge political support. So every election cycle, the, the Kremlin has uh, both changed rules of elections in order to sort of uh, make it easier to engineer this result, and also local political actors, regional governors also are expected to play their part and lure people to the vote. So I think we have to also mention that at this point, there is one candidate in the race who, who drove up interest over the past couple of uh, weeks uh, among the opposition electorate, Boris Nadezhdin, who is a former lawmaker. Now Nadezhdin is running on an anti-war ticket. And you may have seen 
reports of people queuing up in various Russian cities and abroad to support Nadezhda's candidacy. And uh, he indeed uh, claims to have surpassed uh, the minimal requirement of 100,000 signatures to be on the ballot. This does not mean that he's going to be on the ballot. There is a significant debate in Russian political circles and intellectual circles over whether he's a Kremlin project or whether he's just tolerated by the Kremlin at this point. But I think they would both agree, both sides of this debate, and perhaps also the Kremlin would agree, that supporting Nadezhdin at this point is a fairly low-cost, low-risk form of anti-war activism uh, in the country at a time when more active alternatives of uh, anti-war activism remain very risky and intolerably so for most. So this certainly you know, fosters interest in the election itself. Whether or not Najeshdin is then allowed to actually be on the ballot, which I very much doubt, but we'll see. Time will tell. Let's talk about anti-war sentiment a little bit more because this obviously is one of the biggest issues in the world right now. This ongoing war in Ukraine, which has been going since 2014, and then we've had the full-scale invasion since 2022. How much will anti-war sentiment within the public play a part in this election? And will Putin use any kind of rhetoric to do with the war to help get those sceptical people from within the public on his side. We are in an interesting situation here because the Kremlin's narrative over the past year has tended towards the war is an inevitable circumstance. And we are at war not with Ukraine, but but, but with the collective West. And we need to outlast yeah. the collective West, and that requires determination, that requires you know, rallying around the president, that requires showing that we are united around this goal. And to a certain extent, the, the sort of the arch, the arch conservative turn that the Kremlin has taken over the past, well, honestly, years, but especially mm. over the past months, is part of this narrative. We are at war with the decadent West. We are the last bastion of conservatism. So the war is present in that sense, but the the actualities of the war, the battlefield situation, the looming threat of a second wave of military mobilization. If you remember in September 2022, yeah. the first wave of mobilization uh, was came as a shock to uh, to, to the Russian society and uh, led to to various protests and uh, and and, and anti mobilization activism in various regions. The Kremlin certainly doesn't want that and doesn't even want people to think about that. So these aspects of the war, uh, the Kremlin would rather people forget about. What we have seen so far is that apart from this uh, uh, civilizational conflict narrative that is in the there in the background, but is not front and center, what the Kremlin would really like people to believe about this election is that it is business as usual, that there is a storm raging outside and we are in the middle of it, but inside we are safe and sound and everything is just as it should be or as or as, as good as it could be under the current circumstances. And therefore, it needs to to project that, that aura of, of business as usual. So as long as the war is seen as inevitable and existential by critical mass of, of voters and the elite, I believe there is not a lot of room for anti-war activism to influence um, political processes in Russia. But 
this all hinges this this rhetoric this all hinges on expectations that victory is just around the corner it is just you know one or two military victories away in uh, in Ukraine and then everything is going to get better then everything is going to be, going to get back to normal you mentioned in there portraying an image of business as usual is a interesting way to look at it for me, especially as you know in your report that there were around 20,000 people detained for anti-war activity and and how Putin convinces the public that it is business as usual when there's that many people detained over their thoughts over uh, the ongoing war. It seems like it, it would be hard to get across, but I want to touch on, on something else, not just the public. I want to talk about talk about his, his inner circle as well. There's a lot of risks and obstacles for Putin uh, during this election. Do you think that any of those risks that we know of or that we can see could lead to him losing the support of some of his political inner circle? And if he did lose some of that support, how would we even know? How would we see that? Well, this is the million-dollar question because uh, there's very little visibility in what happens if Putin is in their circle. I would say that over the past year, events like the Prigozhin mutiny last year and the response to it by the Kremlin have certainly shaken the belief that Putin is on top of uh, domestic politics, it would seem. But again, like we have very, we have very, very little visibility into uh, Putin's inner circle. And I'm certainly you know, not the person to, to tell you uh, about Kremlin inside gossip. But I would say that we need to make a difference between the security elite and the political elite at large, the security elite has indeed have has indeed had a very good war in that it has been able to increase its uh, influence over domestic politics. Uh, a lot more things are viewed through the lens of national security in Russia, politics, economics, and so on. Uh, you, for instance, if you think of the wave of nationalizations of various mm. enterprises over the past months on national security grounds, for instance, the security elite has seen its its influence grow. On the other hand, when you think about the regional political elites, for instance, who are the regional officials who are who need to juggle a uh, growing array of uh, often conflicting priorities, who uh, are need to see that the same amount of money that the Kremlin would would have been able to spend on regional development and projects which benefit local power brokers, business elites, and so on, now go on war purposes or now go on reconstruction of the occupied territories. This situation certainly creates imbalances and certainly creates uh, winners and losers. And for Putin, I think the most important domestic task of the past year was to ensure that the war the continued war has winners and it has a growing number of winners in Russia. Based on this, I would say that as long as, and I can only repeat myself, as long as the the war is accepted as an inevitable civilizational existential conflict that Russia must win and that Russia can win and, 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 and victory in which is just over the corner by the elite, I don't really see anything meaningful being built up against Putin. The caveat is, of course, that there are that there that in, in in autocracies these things can happen very very fast, and what what I have mentioned to you about the domestic protests and uh, this sort of ad hoc protests over uh, an issue that people are just fed up over 
these are the sparks that lead to something much bigger in autocracies. They're not going to point at an issue because I'm, I can't. But Russia domestically is operating on increasingly tight budgets or increase, uh, increasingly tight capacities. And these mean increasing risks. And again, this is an autocracy. Things happen very, very fast. Yeah. So in short, Putin's fine. He's going to win. But something could happen very quickly that then jeopardizes his his power. Uh, just one last question, and, and very briefly, what does this election victory for Putin, because it is going to be his, his victory, what does this mean for the rest of the world? Specifically, what does this mean for Ukraine as well? I think this is just one of the important elections that, um, from Putin's perspective, uh, he has to win. You know, in order for the developments in Ukraine to go in, the, in his way, go in the way that he wants them to. This is the first hurdle. He has to, the strategy is based on uh, first and foremost and showcasing that he has massive support and that Russians are behind this war, behind Putin himself, but, but most importantly are behind uh, the war effort. Once that's done, he also needs the West to decide that it's not worth supporting Ukraine because the Russians are too united, the Russians are more united than the West, and they are more determined and they are more willing to sort of to spend resources. I, as I have mentioned, I think that would be the wrong conclusion because the election itself is going to show a large uh, pushing majority nonetheless. It, that doesn't mean that Russians are not fed up. That doesn't mean that mm. Russia does not face political risks and uh, growing frustration over a bunch of other things. But but it, it, it was certainly that that's certainly the the message that Putin will want to send. And then the second part of the strategy would be the electoral cycle that takes place in most of Europe this year: the European parliamentary elections, the elections in several European countries, and of course the United States. And those elections should rhyme from Putin's perspective with the Russian presidential election. While the Russian presidential election should showcase support for the war, the rest of these elections should showcase that the West is disunited and does not want to support Ukraine. It sort of creates this narrative that 2024 is the year when it finally turns. I think this is what Putin wants us to believe, and this is what leaders in the West should be prepared to counter with their own narrative and with uh, actual decisions uh, to showcase mm. that the West is determined to help Ukraine get there. And I think knowing that the Russian domestic political situation is much more complicated and much riskier than the March presidential election results, the official results will show is an important part of this. Yeah, as we've been talking about, the Russian election basically already decided, but that doesn't mean it's not worth watching. Andrash, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you'd like to hear more important conversations just like this, then why not back us on Patreon? For just £3 a month, you'll get all of our episodes first, ad-free, and a chance to get your hands on some of our exclusive merchandise. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. The 
Bunker Daily was written and presented by Chris Jones. The producers were Eliza Davis-Beard and Chris Jones. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.